This is our final week in a sermon series on the book of Song of Songs. And today's Bible reading comes from chapter 7, verse 11, all the way through to the end of the book. And we start off at verse 11 with the bride speaking. And she says, Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. If only you were to me like a brother, who was nursed at my mother's breasts. Then, if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And the friends say, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And she says, Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labour gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And the friends say, we have a little sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. And she says, I am a wall, and my breasts are like towers. Thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He let out his vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver. But my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. He says, You who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, let me hear your voice. She says, come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks so much, Sam. My name's Cam Maxwell. I'm one of the staff here, and uh, if we haven't met yet, hopefully we'll get the chance to do that soon. Uh, we are, as Tom said, in our fourth and final week in the Song of Songs, which is a unique part of the Bible, isn't it? Uh, it has the unique claim of being the Song of Songs, that is kind of the greatest of songs. 
And if you have been able to follow along for some or most of the series, I hope that even if you're like me and don't have a great appreciation for ancient romantic poetry in general, uh, even still, I hope you've seen something about how special this song is. It is a beautifully illustrated picture. Uh, It paints this picture for us of two normal people uh, who are just besotted with each other and admire each other and want to be with each other. They find all kind of creative and respectful ways to say how much they desire to be intimate with one another. Uh, It's really quite something and does stand out in the Bible for uh, for many ways, in many ways. Uh, But today, as we get to the end of this beautiful song, this classic love story, uh, perhaps the greatest love song ever sung, how does it finish? Will it be a tragedy like Romeo and Juliet? Or do they ride off into the sunset, some kind of MA-rated Disney movie? Now, I think that's what you're supposed to wonder as you get to the end of the song, how is it going to end? But I imagine that most of us, after the Bible reading uh, we've just had, we haven't even thought much about the ending because we're all just wondering why, in a romantic song, why are there so many family members mentioned? (laughs) Especially mums. It's a little weird. Uh, I'm not a poetry guy. Uh, I don't know if that's normal or not uh, to write romantic poetry with so many references to your mother-in-law. It is an unusual part of the Bible, isn't it? And uh, over the series, we've seen, I think, three helpful things about this book and what it teaches. Uh, If you have, by the way, missed those uh, past few sermons, they are on our website, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to catch up on them. The first thing we saw uh, a number of weeks ago now was that the Song of Songs invites us to celebrate and to praise God. He helps us, uh, the book helps us see that He is very kind in giving us good things to enjoy. He gives us lots of good things to enjoy in creation. Didn't have to give us good things, but He does. And so our world overflows with what God has made for our enjoyment. So this song, in the first place, I think, draws us into that celebration, just thanking God for giving us good things. In the second week, we talked about how the Song of Songs help us know what our deepest desires are there for. That is, as we look on this, uh, this couple and watch their relationship, they, we see the great desire they have for each other. It, it's kind of hard to notice, sorry, hard to miss, that they have what looks like an ideal relationship, It looks perfect in every way from the outside. But of course, we know that uh, perfect vulnerability and affirmation that they seem to have, that's actually kind of unobtainable in the world we live in, in the real world. So this book points us, we have these desires that are often unfulfilled, and this book points us to the greatest desire that we truly have at our core, that we uh, really want fulfilled. Our greatest desire is to be truly known by and affirmed by our Creator, we desire to enjoy a relationship with him. So that was week two. Uh, in the third week last week, we saw how this book also helps us live wisely in the world that God has made. Uh, that's especially true in our relationships, and we uh, sort of get to see how this ideal relationship works. Uh, it shows us, actually, that uh, before we can truly enjoy relationships, uh, something big needs transforming in us. Before we can enjoy trans- uh, relationships, something big needs transforming in us. We all need to be selfless. That is, we need to look out first for the other person, not our own interests. That's true in marriages, but it's actually true for all relationships. And as we talked about last week, it's actually only by knowing Jesus and understanding the gospel, knowing what Jesus has done for us, it's only then that sort of transformation can take place and give us good relationships. So that's what we've seen so far. What have we missed? Here we are, fourth and final week. What have we missed in this book that celebrates love? 
Now, if you notice, we haven't actually talked about love that much uh, in the last three weeks. We've touched on it, and it's pretty obvious they do like each other a lot. Uh, but it's actually not until here, at the very end of the book, in chapter 8, that we have love described. They give us a description, finally, of what this love is about. We've had to assume a fair bit uh, about what love is up until here. So that's what we're going to focus on today, trying to get a sense of what love is. After all, if you had to, if you were put on the spot, um, how would you describe what love is? How would you explain it to someone? You have to do it without using cliches or, uh, you know, terrible song lyrics. How would you explain what love is? I reckon it's actually not that easy to do, uh, partly because uh, culturally we use the word love in all kinds of random ways. Uh, So you have to try and work out what kind of love are we even talking about. Today, we're going to look at how the couple love each other and how the song describes and paints a picture of their love. Because I take it part of the reason we have this song in the Bible is that human love, and this is a very robust example of human love in the ideal marriage, human love is probably the strongest form of love um, that we can experience and it serves partly to illustrate what God's love is like for us. That is, this is a song about a man and a woman and their relationship. It's not some sort of secret code for how God loves people. But as we hold it up alongside to the rest of the Bible, I think we realise this song paints a a great picture for us, a very relatable picture, a concrete illustration, if you will, of what love looks like. So to grasp this kind of love, we kind of then get to see what God's love is like for us. Human love uh, is kind of an illustration for God's love. That's what we saw as we looked at Ephesians chapter 5 very briefly last week. We saw that marriage, um, well, God has built marriage into sort of the fabric of the universe uh, to point us to a bigger truth. Uh, A bigger truth in human love is that Christ uh, Christ loves the church. He loves his people. So I think this song is very helpful for us. Uh, God could could have just given us a dictionary definition of what his love is. That's not much fun, is it? Isn't it helpful for us to see uh, love described in a song? It helps us get, I think, a beautiful and unique angle on what God's love is like. Kind of angle that doesn't get explored in a theology exam, perhaps. Isn't it fitting that uh, this picture of love is in a song? It's fitting. As if the true nature and essence of love is best explored through song. Which is, again, probably why so many terrible songs uh, are about love. Let me point out a few things we'll see. What we're going to do today, I'm going to point out a few things we see in this relationship, and then we'll take a few steps back and see how it helps us understand God's love for us. That's what we're doing. Look at their relationship and then step back and think about how it tells us about God's love. So, if you have the passage open in front of you that some read for us, as we kick the passage off at the end of chapter 7, what we, what we sort of see there is a continuation of what we talked about last week. Um, she invites him to a, a romantic weekend away in the countryside, and it gives us the sense, I think, as you read these verses, the thing she's looking forward to the most is actually his enjoyment of that time. That is, we talked last week about how putting the other person first is really how intimacy works best. We see it all through this book as uh, they both put the other person first. And in this passage, we can see the way she speaks of giving to him, doing things for him, bringing him, and so on. She's focusing on him so that he would enjoy her and their time together. That is, the thing she's looking forward to, what she finds joy in, is his joy. 
Another thing we see, and I think, uh, I think we see this in the last section of the song, is a, perhaps a more mature relationship than what we've seen uh, in the previous parts of the book. Now, I'm slightly less certain of this. Um, it's, it's poetry, so it's kind of a bit hard to know uh, for sure what stage of the relationship they're up to. But I do think we see more focus here on their companionship. Their companionship. It's not just sexual desire at that point, at this point, although it's clearly there. It's actually a focus on their affection. They just really like each other. They like spending time with each other. So if you have a look at uh, verse 5 of chapter 8, you get this image of the wife coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on her husband. Don't think she's sprained her ankle out in the desert or something like that. I think it's a picture of affection for us. They're sharing life together, going for a nice walk in the park together. That kind of image, I think, is on, is that on view. Uh, that sort of affection is on view through uh, verse 1 of chapter 8 as well, if you look back there. Uh, as weird as it sounds, she wants him to be like a brother. It seems that uh, if that were the case, if uh, he was her brother, then she, it, would, it would be socially acceptable for her to go and show him affection in public. It sounds like even married uh, people weren't really um, able to do that, was frowned upon to have uh, public affection. But she's like, if you're my brother, I could just show you my affection all the time. She's very happy to do that in private. Uh, We have no doubt about that. But somehow that's not enough. She just wants to be affectionate and uh, to show her affection all the time. Perhaps the other way we see a more mature relationship here is in the way that family members are mentioned. It's strange. Uh, But I think that's why the mothers are mentioned. The couple here recognises that their love, it takes part in a wider context of, of family. Yeah, it's perhaps the sort of thing that young star-crossed lovers might be a bit naive to. They just see each other and don't think about the wider context. Right up until the wedding, when they suddenly realise, oh, now I'm part of your family forever. It's that kind of realisation that can take a little while to sink in. My brother-in-law here is here, by the way. Great to have you with us, Lodi. At least for this couple, uh, their love for each other, they have an eye to the previous generation, don't they? They're thinking back, and it's almost as if it's implied they're also thinking forward to the next generation as well. It's interesting, children don't really feature at all uh, in, in the Song of Songs, but I think it's kind of implied here. That's part of their, uh, their relationship. Now, I guess I'm just picking up the idea here that their relationship has bonds, has bonds as strong as family bonds. They sort of see themselves now as family, which is to say they like each other. They're there for each other, and they're in it forever. The reason I'm pointing this out, uh, these different elements of their affection, is because I think what we're seeing in this chapter is that their relationship is far more than just a sexual one. Uh, It's not just about hormones in this book. The way they're relating with each other, perhaps, uh, perhaps again in a later stage of their relationship, is with great affection. They have comfort with each other and great companionship. So as much as it is celebrated in the song, sex is not the focus of their relationship. Uh, The thing they celebrate and love the most is the other person and all that comes with that person, even their mums. It seems that in their wisdom, this couple were able to see the place that sex has in their relationship. It's the expression of their affection for one another and it builds their relationship. So it's not the goal of their relationship to have a great sex life. That's, I think, getting it back to front as we read this song. That seems to come because they have a great relationship. Which, as far as I can tell, is about the opposite of the conventional wisdom in our world, where sex, for many, seems to be the goal in and of itself. Instead here, we see this couple, they celebrate the commitment they have to each other. 
uh, which is the context for their sex life. Now, I think this is an area we could actually um, think wrongly about as Christians, or perhaps just be unhelpful in the way we talk about it, especially as we're, if we are young or we're teaching young people or our kids. What I mean is, if we say something that is true and biblical even, that is, if we say, in order to have sex, uh, you first have to be married. Now, that's, that's true, that's biblical, but I don't think it gets it the right way around. That is, isn't it better to not make it sound like marriage is a cost you have to pay in order to have sex? Doesn't make it sound like sex is more important than marriage when you put it that way around? Or to put it another way, doesn't it just make it sound like God is mean to single people? Here we see that marriage is really, really good. Being committed to each other, growing in affection for someone over a lifetime, and having them grow in affection for you, committing to someone else's welfare for a lifetime, serving them, it's a beautiful thing. Which, by the way, is roughly how the New Testament talks about relationships with each other in a church. That is, the kind of relationship we see here described in these ways, I think it does get applied more broadly in the context of a church. Now, I say that this is an entirely different sermon, perhaps for a different day, but I'm, I am aware that uh, for many, the Song of Songs is probably not the most uplifting book in the Bible uh, for all kinds of reasons. And I just want to point this out because I think uh, the value of seeing this part of the song is it shows that sex in a relationship is not the goal. It's not. What that means is that as we think about being uh, members of a church together, um, we do actually share the strongest bonds of love and affection and commitment. That can be enjoyed as a church works well uh, on loving each other and working hard towards that. Because for the Christian, we're not primarily identified as married or single. Our first identity is as brothers and sisters in Christ. What it means is we would love to be a church here where it's a great thing to be married, but it's also just as great to be single, where those relationships are meaningful and there is intimacy We'll get that wrong in all sorts of ways, I'm sure, as a church, but uh, we do want to keep working on that together, don't we? If you're here as someone uh, who uh, wouldn't say you're a follower of Jesus, perhaps you've been dragged along by someone else this morning, or you're starting to look into who Jesus is and uh, what he's all about, welcome. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Uh, you've come on a week when we're looking at a pretty weird part of the Bible, but I should say uh, romantic poetry that includes mothers isn't the weirdest part of the Bible. Come back, there's plenty more to see. For you, whatever your understanding might be of what God is like, I'd be interested to know what do you make of the book in the Bible that celebrates sex? But it does it in such a way that I think shows us the best possible context for sex in a loving, committed, sacrificial friendship. That is, within marriage, it shows it's really good. And so as you keep checking out Jesus, I hope this book gives you a better picture of, uh, well, the kind of better picture than what we often see of Christianity, where it seems as if uh, we're obsessed with rules, about keeping a grumpy God, kind of just stopping being angry. And that's not at all the picture being painted here. As we'll see shortly, I, I hope as well, we'll give you a grasp that uh, just what God's love is like. And I hope you understand that just a little bit better as we keep going today. Well, uh, we've seen their growing affection for each other and their commitment to each other, and, uh, the, they, uh, sorry, and the way they want to enjoy... Uh, sorry, I might just go back a sentence here. We've seen their growing affection for each other, and we've seen their commitment to each other, haven't we? We've seen the way that they most enjoy the joy of the other person. If you have a look, though, in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 8, we, I think, come to some of the most important verses in this song. 
as I explore here what's at the heart of their relationship. It's love. It's committed, and it's unyielding. And it's what has bound them together. So verse 6, she says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Now, the idea with a seal, uh, back in the day before driver's license and credit cards, uh, the family seal was what sort of identified you publicly. It helped show that you owned something or um, belonged to something. So you've probably all seen the movies where uh, there's an official kind of um, family stamp on the ring that they sort of imprint on some melted wax on an important letter, that kind of thing. It's kind of the equivalent, I suppose, of a 100-point ID test. You carry around the family seal, perhaps on, uh, on your, over your neck or uh, on a ring. So what she seems to be saying to him is that she wants to be identified with him, publicly, legally, and permanently. She belongs with him. I guess she's saying that everything he owns is hers forever and vice versa. I guess it's not too different for us in our concept of the wedding ring sort of a permanent and public symbol of being committed uh, together. I think her point is, it's an all-in kind of committed love. There's no going back at that point. But do you notice um, the reason she wants that type of relationship? That's what she says in verse 6, and she goes on to explain, she wants to be like a seal because of what love is like. She knows how powerful it is. The second half of verse 6, for... Love is as strong as death, it's jealousy as unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. Some great couple of verses, uh, uh, love is powerful, that's the point. Death is obviously unescapable and a force that we can't beat or escape, but love has that same unbeatable quality to it. Notice, though, that our love has jealousy built into it. That's not usually the way we like to think about jealousy. Usually jealousy would be something we'd say is negative, something we want to avoid being. But I take it in the way it's being used here, there are actually many times you, uh, you might be jealous in the right kind of way. Uh, so I'm trying to explain. That is, if you, if you love someone, you're in a relationship with them, uh, and that relationship gets threatened somehow, I think there is a kind of jealousy that seeks to protect that relationship that is appropriate. Of course, we know all sorts of ways that can go wrong in our world. But if a threat to marriage came along and a spouse didn't care, that is, they weren't jealous at all, well, you have to wonder if love is active at that point. The point is, love and its desire to protect and maintain affection and intimacy with someone else, in the ideal world, nothing can stop that. It's the most powerful, enduring dynamic in the world. Stronger than death, less flexible than the grave. It's like a flame that no matter how much water you throw on it, you just can't put it out. Many waters can quench love, can't quench love. Rivers can't sweep it away. So these verses in particular teach us that love is far more than a feeling, don't they? It's not a feeling. It's far more than warm fuzzies or sexual desire. It's a commitment. Love has built into it an unwavering, unfaltering commitment. From that commitment... Everything else flows. Affection, vulnerability, friendship, intimacy. Now, these are things I think all of us know in part. We find that, um, sorry, we find that those relationships that persevere, persevere through hardship, we find them noble, don't we? When we know of a couple who sort of battle through and they, they persevere, we like that, we admire that, it's noble. 
I take it that's why Romeo and Juliet is such a popular story. Everything is against them, yet their love endures. I think we kind of get this. Uh, this commitment during hard times is a great thing. We know how powerful it is. You think about the way that love actually does, humanly speaking, work against the odds. A lot more than we might expect when you get two sinful people, put them in marriage and say, work it out together. Uh, love binds them together. It's quite a fascinating thing. This couple, they know about the power of committed love and they celebrate it here. They also give us warnings. Because they know love is so powerful, they say, be careful. Uh, we've seen the same line a number of times in the song that we see here in verse 4. It's a charge to the young women of, Israel, uh, of Jerusalem to not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. That is, she seems to be warning uh, her younger friends, those listening on, love takes commitment. They're inseparable things, love and commitment. So don't rush into this romance, uh, romantic, intent, intimate relationship unless you can commit. I think this is a timely warning for those who are dating uh, amongst us and especially our youth. Uh, it's important to be careful with how much we give of ourselves to someone else without the commitment of marriage. If we can put it this way, uh, if an unmarried couple were to say, we love each other, so why can't we sleep with each other? Well, it seems from the Song of Songs, the answer to that would be, well, prove you love each other, not by sleeping with each other, but by committing to each other in marriage. If you're not ready to do that, to commit, we well, haven't you haven't proven you're ready to sleep with each other because you haven't understood yet what love really is. I think as well, that's what is happening in verses 8 to 10, uh, those very odd verses. I think that's what they're actually doing. The way I think we're supposed to read this is to see the concern the friends have for their little sister. She's not uh, mature enough to be married yet. I know it's a very weird way to say that. Uh, it's also perhaps possible this wife in the story is replaying a conversation from her youth when her brothers uh, were talking about this. We met her brothers back in chapter 1. Either way, whoever it is who has this concern, the point seems to be because love takes commitment, like marriage, there is a desire to keep younger people, to encourage them to wait, to put appropriate defences, walls. The reason being so that intimacy doesn't happen without the right and proper context of marriage. They seem to be trying to encourage that. In verse 10, uh, the wife speaks and she says, well, it's, she says it in a strange way, but she's like, yeah, I did wait until the commitment of marriage. And it was the best thing for both of them. She says, verse 10, thus I've become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Peace. The exclusiveness and commitment of marriage are delightful. And it's delightful to both of them. See, because love is powerful and because it binds together, when it comes to dating... It's wise to proceed slowly and with caution. And we should be thankful if we have friends or family encouraging us to be wise. So, love is powerful. Uh, The second major thing we see is that love is priceless. It's beyond value. In the end of verse 7 here, we see, if someone gave away everything they had to try and buy love, everyone would laugh at them. You can't afford love. You can't put a price on it. The idea sort of being, it's freely given, but it isn't cheap. Then again, as you get to verses 11 and 12, you see the same thing, the bit about Solomon having a vineyard. It could here be a reference to Solomon's harem. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He needed somewhere to keep them all. Uh, Perhaps the money-changing hands has something to say about how Solomon just buys what he wants. He sees a woman and he doesn't love her, he buys her. But not this woman. 
Maybe Solomon did try once uh, to buy her or something like that and to try and add her to his collection. But maybe it's just a way of saying, you can't buy my love. It's mine to give. So, Solomon, let me tell you where you can stick your money. I think that's what she's saying. But it kind of sounds like she pities Solomon, doesn't it? This poor country girl has found love, and it's better than what Solomon has with all his riches. She has love. He has sex on demand, but without any real personal commitment. He doesn't know love like she does. He can offer her all the money in the world. He can have his harem, but he's the fool. He's the fool who's missing out on what is truly valuable. Love is powerful and it's precious. It's worth more than anything to have it and to be able to give it away. And so as we get to the end of this book, do you see how it finishes in verse 13 to 14? It's kind of a picture, I think, of them riding off into the sunset together. They're kind of chasing each other off into the sunset, I guess. It's probably the only way to finish a song about the ideal relationship, the happily ever after kind of thing, because we think, well, even for this ideal relationship, it has no end, does it? There's no point of being a completely perfect relationship, even ideal as it might look. I think this finishes with a picture of them always wanting more, They're always growing, always desiring, never totally, completely satisfied in every way. That's true for everything in our life, isn't it? So we see here, even something as powerful and precious as love in this relationship, even this, we can't even imagine how it would finish with perfect satisfaction. One commentator puts it like this, and I'll ask Kelly to pop it up on the screen, please. As the couple head off into their future... The reflection is human love knows no definitive consummation, no absolute fulfillment. Loving relationships are never complete. They're always ongoing, always reaching for more. And so, as I mentioned last week, one application of our time in this book is to encourage our married people to keep working on our marriages. Uh, We're putting uh, some info on Slack and in a weekly email this week about how you might be able to do that. But what I think this book does, as we reflect on the joys and limitations of human love, is it, I think, prepares us to have a fuller grasp of what God's love is like for each of us. Yes, human love, as we talked about, is wonderful, it's a powerful, precious thing. But even then, we don't experience it perfectly. And so, it points us to something much greater, something far more precious, far more valuable. It's just the smallest taste of God's love for His people. I have another quote, this one's a bit longer, but I think it's one of the uh, most helpful ones to kind of round out our series for us. Uh, It's from a great Christian thinker from the 1700s, a guy called Jonathan Edwards. He says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers... Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? The love and enjoyment we see in the Song of Songs is but a glimpse of God's love for us and his enjoyment of us. We've spoken about commitment as perhaps the hallmark of love in this song. 
And what do we know about God's commitment for us? His loving commitment towards us. We know it, don't we? Despite not loving Him at all, our Heavenly Father, our Creator, He is committed to us. He's proven it, how powerful and unyielding His love is. His love which is more powerful uh, than the death of His one and only Son. His love is jealous for us, again, in, in the right kind of way. Our hatred towards Him was a threat to our relationship and Jesus' resurrection shows us God's love for us is stronger than death. It even beats the grave. God's love is jealous for us, so He does something about the threat to that relationship in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God pursued us. Jesus went to the cross to win us, to secure us, to claim us as His own because God loves us. And because he finds joy in our joy. I'm not sure if you thought much about this, but God delights in our joy. And he's gone to such extraordinary lengths so that we might find true joy in him. His love gives of himself for our benefit, so that we can have an eternity with a joyful, perfectly intimate, satisfying and fulfilling relationship. We can be sure that God's committed love, it's even more powerful than death. So we can be sure that absolutely nothing will get in the way of his love for his people. Nothing at all. Not our circumstances. Not our sin. Jesus' death on the cross covers all that entirely. It pays for our sin, our rebellion. In fact, not even our feelings can get in the way of God's love for us. God is committed to loving those who he has called his own. Our feelings will come and go. You might say the spiritual highs and lows will come and go. But God's love is the most powerful dynamic in the universe. It's freely given. We don't earn it. We can't afford it. He loves us. He freely chooses to love us, to give himself for us. But it wasn't cheap. I hope as we've spent some time in this strange part of the Bible, as we've thought more today about the nature and the shape of love, that it gives us insight into why Jesus paid the penalty of, uh, of our sin on the cross. It's because relationship with us brings him joy. He's made us to find the most joy in relationship with him. And so our task today is to know that love and to enjoy it. And as we're able to love him in return. So to finish, on a day we've talked a lot about commitments, uh, today might be a good thing for me to encourage us all to do, to commit, maybe for the first time, or perhaps just a kind of a recommitting kind of idea, committing to give ourselves, uh, committing to give our lives, our service and our love, committing to give it to our Creator, the one who died for us. So would you join me then in prayer? I'm going to pray uh, one of Paul's prayers in Ephesians chapter 3. I'll ask you to join me. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.